0: Good morning on today's Every Day is Earth Day. We are going to be talking about COP27, the 27th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. A long title, but I've got an expert on climate change here. And that is Dr. Don Friend, a professor here at Minnesota State University, Mankato, who served as a senior science advisor in the United States Agency for International Development Office of Global Climate Change. Good morning, Don.
1: Good morning, Karen. It's so nice to be back with
0: you. Now, I think it's been a year ago since we talked all about climate change and you were on this fellowship by the National Academy of Sciences where you spent a year and traveled and in, in Washington, D.C. as well to learn all about global climate change.
1: That's right, I did. So, I was very fortunate for a sabbatical leave year. I served as Senior Science Advisor in the Office of Global Climate Change. and. For those of you listening, the United States Agency for International Development works hand-in-glove with the U.S. Department of State, and so their budget comes together. The U.S. Department of State and AID budget together are called the Foreign Assistance Budget, and all together it's about three-quarters of one percent of the entire U.S. budget for a year. and what's curious is the Department of State has 50,000 employees, includes ambassadors and foreign service officers, whereas USAID only has about 12,000 staff. But even though they're a fifth of the staff, they're half of the money because the Agency for International Development helps other countries develop appropriately.
0: Okay. And I brought you in today because I wanted to talk about the recently held COP27. And as I mentioned, it's the 27th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or COP27. Right. So talk a little bit about what this is all about, because it it's kind of foreign to a lot of people who don't Absolutely. follow this sort of thing all the time.
1: So bear with me for one moment while I give you a little background, and then I can talk about what occurred last week at COP27 in Egypt. Sure. So... The original United Nations Conference on Climate Change occurred in 1992. That far back. That far back. Mm -hmm. And it was agreed that they should meet every year, which they started doing in 1995. And so this was the 27th meeting of the parties to the convention on climate change. And every year they get together and say, this is where we are. This is what we should be doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So fast forward to... COP 27, 27th time uh, all the parties have come together, which is essentially most every nation who's a member of the United Nations. And these are talks at very high levels. The Secretary of State was there, the Special Envoy for Climate Change, former Secretary and Senator John Kerry was there, and President Biden came by and gave a speech, and so on. So everybody's there talking about it. It lays out the framework, what and how will our nation and every nation in the world How will they address climate change moving forward?
0: Why did they first form it in 92? What was the alarm bell that said we should do something? Uh,
1: Climate change was beginning. More natural disasters, market increase in CO2. Uh, Wasn't so much awareness of methane at that time. Now there is. And so we knew about this three decades ago. But you
0: said not a lot has actually happened during all this time.
1: Well... I shouldn't say that so blanket quite a bit has happened okay we have reduced our our global emissions markedly here in this country the Clean Air Act uh, more teeth were put into it by subsequent presidents from the 1970s when it was enacted we've cleaned up our atmosphere we have reduced our emissions hugely in fact now this is something to both be proud of and also to be disappointed in China five years ago surpassed us as the world's largest polluter and emitter of carbon gases. Now, what that means is we used to produce 20 percent, 25 percent. Now, China produces, emits 27 percent of all greenhouse gases, whereas the U.S. emits merely 11 percent. Now, as I say that, Per capita basis, per person in the U.S., we still emit more than than one Chinese person, but on an aggregate, we are doing less than half of what China is doing. That's good. Europe altogether, Western Europe altogether, is less than half of what we are. Russia is climbing, but Russia's greenhouse gas output is mostly from leaking natural gas wells and leaking oil wells, where they're leaking methane. Now, so do
0: we have that in the United States? We so do have that in we the, have the United that. States. So Talk about leaking. It seems like that would be something you could easily fix. Am I right or we wrong? Can't,
1: we can easily fix it. Oh. So, so first of all, methane. This is natural gas that we all know and love and use in the kitchen and in our hot water heaters and so on. But when it finally goes through the processing plant, we add a we add the smell of rotten eggs to it, so we know it's it know that it's there. But before we do that, it is an odorless, colorless gas that is associated with oil drilling. And at 40 years ago, it was waste. It was you know you only needed a little bit for natural gas stoves in people's houses. Mostly, it was a waste product in the way of getting to the oil, and it was just flared off or leaked to the atmosphere. Now we've figured out that methane for the first 20 years of its existence, it's 87 times more active as a greenhouse gas. Mm. At about the 20-year mark, it fades, and slowly, slowly over 80 years, becomes equal with carbon, or CO2, carbon dioxide. But to begin with, it's, it's 87 times more active, does more greenhouse gas trapping, greenhouse heat trapping than the other. So it's easy to fix leaking methane.
0: Then why it, aren't we doing that?
1: We are starting to do that President. So we we have been doing it in fits and starts here and there. The short answer to your question is because we don't enforce it. President Biden, good thing that came out of COP 27 right now that I think is something easily done, uh, not terribly expensive and really good for our planet, is President Biden said by 2030. He will make sure that we have zero excess methane emissions because he is going to start, or he's signing executive orders, to start monitoring and enforcing leaking gas wells and oil wells. The way it works now, at least in this country, you drill a new gas well, a new oil well, it's inspected shortly after it's completed, and that doesn't have to be inspected again.
0: So it's just free free running. and Free
1: running, and if anything breaks down and it starts just leaking all its methane, who cares? So they,
0: more regulatory rules or things that the oil folks are going to have to deal with. Correct. Which they don't want, I'm sure. They
1: don't want they don't want to have to do that, but they're also the first ones they've changed their names. They're no longer the oil companies, they're the energy companies. In case you didn't notice. They claim they want to do good things. This would be a good thing they could do. An interesting fact that has come out we can identify from space. From satellites in outer space, there's now a methane devoted satellite. All it's doing, it can detect methane from outer It's not smelling, it's the it's the,
0: the spectra, it's visual, okay. it's the
1: we can detect from outer space and it turns out there are one hundred leaking gas or oil wells around the around the world, M- most of them are actually in the USSR, the nastiest ones.
0: Well, no, that doesn't sound like a lot. A hundred in a whole globe doesn't sound like a lot. So, there, I mean...
1: There are thousands that are leaking, but the hundred top ones that oh, are leaking... Oh, okay, gotcha. If we... There are just a hundred that if we cap them...
0: Yes, what would happen? We
1: would prevent 15% of all global methane emissions. We could reduce greenhouse gas inputs by 15% by capping the hundred worst offenders. Most of those are uh, in Russia. There are a few here in the United States and we're moving that direction. There are a couple, three that are sort of famous that are impossible to cap. We're talking exposed, open pit coal mines that are on fire, you know, that are a square mile across. So you, and can't, do you can't do anything? You can't do anything about that. But we could cap a bunch of these oil wells and if we monitor, and, and natural gas wells, we monitor those we will improve greenhouse gas emissions hugely.
0: So what else happened at this COP27? I know one of the things that I kept seeing about is the goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, and that's the number I keep hearing. So yes. is that still their target?
1: That is the target, 1.5 degrees, that if we pass that global average of warming, it's widely agreed by the entire scientific community that this is takes us beyond a point where we could go back and what will be, what is already beginning to happen but will accelerate and get much worse is parts of the planet will be too hot for people to survive, for plants to grow, for animals to survive. We're seeing this. I mean, already here, we have days in the summer in farmer's fields where unless you're in an air-conditioned combine, you can't work outside. We are seeing in inner cities in the United States and particularly in the developing world where they cannot retreat to indoors to air conditioning. We are seeing people dying of heat-related diseases. We are also seeing glaciers melting, including the Greenland ice cap and Antarctic ice cap, and sea level is rising. Now, this isn't, it's going to happen instantly in the future. Florida is already having, as just one example, bigger hurricanes that are wiping out all the vacation homes on the barrier islands, and the insurers don't want to pay to rebuild. People can't sell these places that are in harm's way. Property values are going down. Insurance rates are going up. And where are those people moving to? They're moving inland. There are articles in the New York Times. Where do you move to climate-proof your life? They literally are saying one of the best cities to move to in America is Duluth.
0: Well, you know, I just talked with someone who David... POG, or POG, P-O-G-U-E, who was, yeah. wrote a book on climate change, and he said that's where the, the kind of the sweet spot is in the Midwest for the best place to live in terms of dealing with the climate change. So, I mean, are they all yeah. going to come and invade Minnesota?
1: They are. Property values have gone up in Duluth. You can't buy a house in Duluth. We, we think real estate went up here just because real estate went up at the end of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's even higher in Duluth. People are now doing research. When they buy a house, they look literally, what are the temperature trends mm. in these locales? And real estate agents are having to do this, to do this for potential buyers. Now, let me come back to what you asked about what happened at the COP, you asked yeah, 1.5 in COP. Let me come back to that a little bit. So President Biden said, yes, we're going to reduce methane emissions. Beautiful thing.
0: Now, when you and say we, you mean United we, States. We, the United States. What about the other countries then?
1: The other countries all said, yeah, we're, we're going to do our best to do that, but okay. we'll see. Uh, Let's hope that happens. Okay. The thing that has made the headlines, and this will be very interesting to see how this plays out, is the small countries and developing countries that are disproportionately affected by climate change have been saying for 20-plus years, you rich, developed countries need to pay for all the damage that is occurring to we undeveloped small countries. At this COP... The big country said, finally said under unrelenting pressure from the small countries at this thing, they said, OK, we'll start a fund.
0: Yeah, that is one of the things that I read in one of the reports that said the historic decision was to establish and operationalize a loss and damage fund and the... I believe it was the Secretary General said, together, let's not relent in the fight for climate justice and climate ambition. We can and must win this battle for ourselves. So that is the big deal.
1: That's a huge deal. Just the fact that developed nations acknowledged that they, we, the United States included, have polluted more and created many of these issues for the developing countries. That's huge. The fact so that. So,
0: who, who monitors some big fund? Where does this money come from? How does this work? Because it just <laughs> seems like it's so overwhelming that I can't even imagine.
1: Well, what they agreed to is over the next year, they're going to collect data and try and assemble a process for how this might work. Now, in the meantime, ultimately the way it works is any one country's tax dollars, a portion would have to go to that. Now, will our Congress agree to give money to help other countries out of their climate change issue. Beyond what we're already doing for development work, I doubt it. I doubt that our Congress would agree to that.
0: Well, you know, not only our Congress, but what about those other countries? Oh,
1: absolutely. Can you see the Chinese central government or the Russian proletariat? You know, you can't You can't see the Russian Duma doing this. So I don't know how far this will go. I, I don't predict it'll get very far, but it will continue to be an issue. And to be sure, the small countries, they they have a they have a big point. There are small Pacific island nations, including there are U.S. protectorates. People can't live there anymore because the seas have risen too much. One of the islands in Micronesia, the people a couple of years ago, their prime minister intelligently said, there are only 40,000 of us. We can't live in our, in our one city anymore. Will the U.S. take us all in because there's no place for us to go? The U.S. does not have an intelligent response for this, but this is an issue, these kinds of things. Uh, So that was the other very large piece of news to come out of this COP. There is a a less uh, visible piece, but this is very important. The so-called stock-taking process has begun, and every fifth year, this is part of the whole COP and UNFCC thing, every fifth year we're supposed to do a stock-taking, and the stock we're taking is how many greenhouse gases are we actually putting out and how much has our climate changed and so we're in the process of collecting those data right now do we collect
0: our own is it an independent study because i can picture the u.n
1: (laughs) so there's a framework for what data you have to submit and every country has to submit this data or has agreed to submit these data to the u.n so the u.n has a climate office a secretariat it's in bonn in germany but there's a website UN climate change website, where each country, there's an outline of what data you need to collect, and our country does this. We have the National Weather Service, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NASA. We collect all these data, but we have to package it a certain way. So this means some hardworking federal staff people, federal scientists will coordinate these data and plop them into the website. Now, you can be sure that this will be proofed 25 times up and down the line to make sure there's nothing inaccurate and we will contribute our part of the data to this and so a year from now the next cop the data all the results from the stock taking from around the globe will come out and we'll see how are we doing on the march to 1.5 degrees have we is our global average above that below that where are we it looks like we're not going to meet it but uh, we certainly should meet it I wish we. I hope we all meet it. Buy an electric car, everybody.
0: Now, one of the headlines that came out in one news article was: "The United States received stinging criticism at COP 27 despite China's growing emissions." What is that all about?
1: That stinging criticism is because we've been the biggest. We were. We were the biggest polluter, and we remain the biggest polluter and greenhouse gas producer per capita, and that we have not been open to paying any kind of reparations to these small countries so that's the stinging criticism the other part of it comes claiming the u.s has is full of hubris president biden going there and saying we want to be leaders on climate change yet being hypocrites that we are the biggest drivers of climate change these smaller countries have a point <laughs> well can we be leaders and try and reduce more than anybody else uh, or can we not a small sideline here is uh, the previous presidential administration grasp onto, we're going to plant a billion trees and we're going to save the climate. This was somehow acceptable. If you literally count up every every country's goal of planting umpteen million or mm-hmm. billion trees, there physically is not enough land to plant oh, all the <laughs> trees that people plant. Great planting. idea, yeah, but you know, no, not able to execute. It's just not going to be able to work.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: So you... you got to take a hard look at this we plainly and simply need to change how we do business
0: how do we make somebody else do that i mean if, even if the united states does all this stuff which obviously probably we have more potential to do it than some say like china
1: yeah the european nations are working hard to do this the developing world even though they're angry that it, it if you will it's not so much their fault and they want to they want to use fossil fuels to develop themselves They also are sanguine about this. They realize this. And they are using appropriate technologies to develop. They are embracing all of these things. But we need, we really do, we need to take the lead. We make more cars than anybody else. Well, let's make more electric cars. Convert your water heater in your house to an electric water heater. So the economies of scale, yes, we cannot tomorrow go to wind. Tomorrow we cannot go to solar. Uh, I personally do not believe we should go to nuclear. I think it's too dangerous. But what we need to do is incrementally all of those things. Uh, What if all new construction had at least two square meters of photo panel on the roof? What if everybody who lived in a rural area at least had one small wind generator? What if everybody had an electric car and those who still needed to show that they had to work far enough away, they had to have a fossil fuel burning vehicle? Okay, all this works. What if MSU's rental and worker vehicle fleet went all electric? We don't drive these vehicles around the campus more than a couple miles, you know, maybe 10 miles in a day when you circum- go around campus a few times downtown to get parts, come back. Why couldn't those be electric?
0: Is so, the cost prohibitive still in some cases?
1: If you try to buy it all tomorrow you know, a whole new vehicle fleet for the city of Mankato or for Blue Earth County. If you tried to do it all tomorrow, oh, it would cost millions of dollars. And it would be cost prohibitive. However, if in the life cycle of every business and every government entity, oh, this year we're buying five new cars. Next year we're buying five new cars. next
0: So well, part of the long-term plan. Part of the
1: long-term plan. Do that and you can make it happen. And the, the payoffs, MSU did this recently. We, 20 years ago, it was a financial decision the vp for finance saw the writing on the wall we paid extra money to put on new roofs on all of the buildings it was one a year one every other year but the new roof it wasn't because we needed a roof and it was worn out it's because if we put on an insulated roof that's a foot thick with insulating material in 10 years, we will save the energy bill. We did that. We've already done it. We've already saved that money.
0: And I've talked to Paul Corcoran, the building ma- maintenance VP here at VP MSU. VP for facilities, yes. Yeah, there you go. And he talked about we've done a lot of those things already. Yeah. In fact, there was a big article about Winona doing some of these things and we've already kind of been involved with changing the lighting to more efficient and we've even got some solar panels on like the Health Sciences Center which I understand is kind of a mandate for future buildings.
1: Correct. So here at MSU every single light bulb on the entire campus is now uh, an LED, light emitting diode. It's not even neon, it's LED. It's the lowest electricity use. So we're now using about 20% even 15% of the electricity we used to for better lighting. We're now talking about photo panels all over the place. Winona State funded that uh, partly with a with a grant money from the state.
0: Which we had too, but he said that was from way back when That's, and we used ours sooner.
1: Yep. Yes, yeah. We used ours sooner, we roofs, light bulbs etc. Yes. So now we're trying to figure out all right, how do we find the cash the to next put photo top. panels, you know, the next the next level. Yes.
0: You know with the top 27 a lot of people it's sort of above your head because you don't necessarily follow it so why should anybody care about this what would you tell people
1: i would tell them that your grandchildren will suffer you are suffering right now whether whether you get it or not you are suffering you're paying you're paying more for energy you're paying more for food and that's because supply lines are interrupted not just because of covid we're over that it is because of energy costs and climate change is interrupting when crops can be grown. Climate change is interrupting the ability of ports to do business. When there's a big, here's one example, very real, big hurricanes come through. Where do they hit? They hit the Gulf Coast, Texas, Louisiana, where is our fuel processing and our chemical processing businesses? They line that coast. Mm-hmm. And when that coast, when a when a hurricane comes along and it wipes out a couple of chemical plants, that interrupts everybody's supply line.
0: So get rid of the fossil fuels is what you're saying?
1: Uh, partly get rid of the fossils. Okay. You can't get we won't be able to get rid of all of them. Okay. We still need fossil fuels to make building materials that we use. Okay. We can't get rid of all of them. And we certainly can't do it tomorrow, but we need to start thinking green in everything we do so that we can s- start reducing all of this. And people ask me quite often, well, I- if the U.S. is now a net exporter of oil, why aren't we doing it? Why are we still importing a?" Well, now, this is a fascinating. Now, here's the geography professor talking yeah, geography. Okay. <laughs> this is so fascinating to me. When we first built the oil industry, it was based on about a third comes domestically, but two thirds comes from everywhere else. And all our oil processing plants are built on what's called light crude. And it is literally, it's the chemical weight of the oil that comes from the Middle East and from Russia and comes from California and Texas. So-called heavier oils that are from the tar sands in Canada and from the Bakken Basin in North Dakota, well, they're the kind of crude oil that our oil processing facilities can't process. They're not made to process them. And so that's the oil that we export. We have to import the stuff that we don't have as much of in our country. So what's happened is, yeah, we're awash in oil, but we're not awash in the stuff that our fuel processing Plants are designed. Why? Why is to that?
0: Why didn't they build some that would process that?
1: Well, because we built them in the first half, in the middle of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and because they're expensive to build. Oh, they're really expensive to build, and also our oil infrastructure. Unless we put in a second set of pipelines, the pipelines are all made. Oil come from the coasts from container ships that come to the coasts. You process it on the coast, and you put it in a pipe and bring it inland, okay? Well, oil from Canada and oil from North Dakota needs to go the other way. How much press was there about this oil? What was it, line three going through North Dakota? This, would, this is a pipeline that would take oil from North Dakota and Canada to go, to be processed at the coasts, to go the other way. Everybody's screaming, I don't want that in my backyard. It's so funny to me, people don't realize that there are already several pipelines that are in your backyard going the other way <laughs> so that you can have gasoline with. And a pipeline is the safest way to do this. So here I am, a good a good card-carrying environmentalist, saying... Well, right. That's we when sh- you're saying that. We should have built a pipeline. It's
0: yeah. it,
1: uh, Environmental interests and development interests make strange bedfellows. We can't go back to the Pleistocene, to the Ice Age, to being hunter-gatherers. We... We need to do something reasonable. Well, could we, in the next five years, implement enough solar and wind to not need an entire oil pipeline? I don't think so, especially if we could do this domestically. And the safest way to move oil is, and also the least carbon-intensive way to move oil, is by a pipeline. We've got plenty of them. We need to maintain them. Right. But we got plenty of pipelines. The alternate is to put it all in a truck and those burn their own fossil fuels and pollute themselves, or to put it all on trains. And that heavier crude is literally heavier. And so there are all kinds of trains There were when it first started happening. There were these huge train wrecks right. happening all in the northern tier. That's because they were filled with this more volatile, literally heavier oil from Canada and North Dakota. And they're having train wrecks all over the place and these horrible train accidents. We need a pipeline.
0: John, we are just about out of time, so I'm just going to ask you one more question about the COP since yes. we started talking about the COP 27. Was it a success or not a success or kind of a meh?
1: I think it was. I think it was a success. Okay. Ultimately, absolutely, we our country went on record. We're going to work hard to reduce methane, which is incredibly important. Oh, I can't stress that highly enough. The developing world is thrilled because they believe they have been or they they were heard and all the developed countries have acknowledged and that is huge if only a moral victory that is a huge victory for the developing world and I have no doubt that we will do something whether it will be as much as the developing countries want we will do something to help them and we have to because we have to do it to help ourselves so I think I think COP 27 was a success I think the framers of the climate convention this was a, developed dreaming up cop a conference of the parties every year that was a brilliant stroke to do that greta turnberg made headlines last year showing up at you know at cop in scotland and cop the year before by sailboat And the but uh, she didn't go this time she protested didn't go and so she made she had no headlines Whether or not she was doing stuff in Europe, I don't know. I haven't haven't seen a headline. But I think it was a great success.
0: Okay. Well, that's what I wanted to know. And we are chatting with Minnesota State Mankato professor Dr. Don Friend. He's a professor of geography with a keen interest in global climate change. Thank you so much for your expertise.
1: Karen, thank you for having me yet again.